0: So, we're dealing this afternoon on the Puritans with regard to the family. Puritan thinking and preaching and writing overflows with a high, a healthy, a holy, and believe it or not, a happy view of the Christian family. As so often, the Puritans were developing what their own spiritual forefathers had already gained, not least the reformers of the 16th century. But this very distance of the Puritans from us in time, if not always in space, can jar us out of the casual assumptions which we too often make. It obliges us to ask questions which we might otherwise ignore and to consider answers which we might otherwise never contemplate. However, that distance between us and the typical Puritans also means that we need to take account of some important qualifications before we dive into this strange old world. When we consider the Puritan family, we are really looking at what the preaching and writing Puritans thought a family ought to be. To some extent, they are portraying and pushing toward an ideal. Now, that's perfectly legitimate. We do it today in any sphere of principled godliness. We set forth a goal from the scriptures at which individual Christians ought to aim or after which a godly family or the new covenant community ought to strive. But because they are pointing toward what ought to be, we must remember that they are not describing what is or what always is. In other words, I hope you are not here on the assumption that the Puritan era was simply a golden age for family life. They may have had some golden goals, but like us, they were living in a world of alloy. Furthermore, these Puritans are writing almost by definition for the literate. And beyond that, for the literate people who might actually want to read what they are writing. For the poorest of the poor in the Puritan period, the main priority was probably simply survival. For the lowest of the low, independence of action was likely to be extremely limited. Their lives were structured and their existences dominated by the people whom they served. Again, we're now narrowing down the field. We shouldn't assume that everyone bought into typical Puritan notions of what a family could or should look like. Alongside of this, we also acknowledge that most of us have no real idea of what it is to live in a world where advanced medical care and civic hygiene, as we understand them, barely exist. If mortality rates today meant that one in five children from the same household might not survive their first year, and if life expectancy ran around 35 to 40 years, how many of us would even be here to listen to the lecture? We also confess that we have readily available to us few of the more personal records, such as diaries, that might illuminate our understanding at a more immediate level. There's a difference between a memoir and a diary and a sermon. We do have some, like that of a lady called Lucy Hutchinson, who wrote of her husband in this way. To number his virtues is to give the epitome of his life which was nothing else but a progress from one degree of virtue to another, till in a short time he arrived to that height which many longer lives could never reach. And had I but the power of rightly disposing and relating them, his single example would be more instructive than all the rules of the best moralists, for his practice was of a more divine extraction, drawn from the word of God, and wrought up by the assistance of his spirit." Therefore, in the head of all his virtues, I shall set that which was the head and spring of them all, his Christianity. For this alone is the true royal blood that runs through the whole body of virtue. And every pretender to that glorious family who hath no tincture of it is an impostor and a spurious brat. She thought very highly of her husband from the other side of the marriage relationship you've got Richard Baxter's testimony to his wife Margaret a woman who he said never came to any place where she did not extraordinarily win the love of the inhabitants unless in any street where she stayed so short a time as not to be known to them. Baxter claimed for Margaret a discernment that made her, except in cases that required learning and skill in theological difficulties, better at resolving a case of conscience than most divines I ever met with in all my life. He also confessed to his readers that the the Breviate, that's his uh, record of her life, was written under the power of melting grief, and therefore perhaps with the less prudent judgment, but not with the less, but the more truth. A passionate weakness pours out all which greater prudence may conceal. you've also got tributes paid to people in funeral sermons, which are sometimes a little bit more personal. Now, without for one moment wanting to drag down Colonel Hutchinson or Margaret Baxter, it's hard not to suspect the tendency in such works and on such occasions to paint an unusually rosy hued picture. Imagine if you had to write a a memoir, even a a page, for a recently deceased husband or wife. And you might write in glowing terms, and a friend of yours might say, that's not the guy you were talking about a few weeks ago. (laughs) Even if they are relative... But it's still honest, isn't it? Okay, It's just circumstantially honest. Even if accurate in themselves... We want to be careful before we insist that every husband scaled the same heights as Colonel Hutchinson and every wife attained the same eminence as Margaret Baxter. So for all that, taking all that into account, there's an edge of realism about Puritan dealing on this topic. There are counsels and warnings against all kinds of abuses and sins, some particularly vile, others simply brutish, and some more commonplace. These indicate that the Puritans who are dealing with these topics aren't living with their heads in the clouds. They deal not only with the blessings involved and the joys pursued in godly families, but also the challenges faced and the sorrows experienced. They may not have been able to reach everyone with their books, but the books at least give an indication of the kinds of sermons they preached and the kind of pastoring in which they engaged, and the sometimes, often, painful circumstances through which they guided the people of God if the Puritans set forth an ideal it is an ideal at which they genuinely aimed independence on God and an ideal to which they believed they could and should increasingly attain so you enter many Puritan homes and it's the kind of atmosphere and activity that you will actually find Also, take account of the fact that there may be a Puritan consensus in general that does not extend to every detail. So whenever you talk about the Puritans, remember that sometimes they disagree with one another. As today, preachers and teachers who share the same basic outlook on family religion may have difference of emphasis, difference of nuance. So we're going to try and capture something of the consensus and take account of the context out of which that consensus came. So don't carelessly and casually lionize the Puritan period. You know what I mean by lionize? It is not a season in which every family in every place is a little outpost of heaven upon earth and nothing ever goes wrong. (laughs) neither dismiss it as too far distant for us to benefit from its lessons or too spiritual for it to be of much use to us today. So my aim now is not so much to provide a history lesson about Puritan families as to learn from the Puritans more of what it means to be a godly family today. So first of all then, for the foundation of the family, the Puritans looked to God. The family was a God-established institution. Their view of the family in its various roles and relationships was rooted in revelation and reflective of their context. That means, for example, that a proper Puritan understanding of the family includes not only husbands and wives in relation with each other and potentially with children, but also masters in connection with servants. In each case... It is God who declares what each party is in itself and in relation to others. So God gets to say what a man is in relation to a woman, what a husband is in relation to a wife and children and in himself. A man called Thomas Doolittle asserted that God is the founder of all families as such. Therefore, families as such should pray unto him. The household society usually is of these three combinations, husband and wife, parents and children, masters or servants. Though there may be a family where all these are not, yet take it in its latitude and all these combinations are from God. The institution of husband and wife is from God, Genesis 2, and of parents and children and masters and servants, and the authority of one over the other and the subjection of the one to the other is instituted by God and founded in the law of nature, which is God's law. Doolittle went on to assure his hearers that God was owner, governor, master, benefactor of their families also, both as a whole and in all of their parts." So William Googe points out that when Paul moves from general to particular Christian duties in Ephesians 5, he makes choice of those which God has established in a family. So from the very outset, Googe insists upon the heavenly origin of the family unit. It is not accidental. It is God's plan and purpose. Another man, Robert Cleaver, an earlier generation, says, "...and household is, as it were, a little commonwealth." by the good government whereof God's glory may be advanced, and the commonwealth which stands of several families benefited. And all that live in that family receive, receive much comfort and commodity. So that's a typical Puritan idea. Um, the, the, the family is a little commonwealth, and families together make bigger commonwealths. It is manifest, goes on Cleaver, that such families are not ordered by haphazard or as it falls, but by wisdom, discretion and counsel, and they do prosper in inward and outward goods and endure long. When we speak of wisdom, we do not mean that this government can be in all points exercised by natural reason and wisdom, for man's wisdom reaches but unto one point, and that the least of that which family government tends to. But the wisdom that we speak of, again here's the emphasis, is not natural but fetched from the fountain of all wisdom, God himself who by his word gives unto us pure light to walk by not in the church alone nor in public society of men only but even within the secret of our own walls and towards such as be abiding under the same roof. And if we desire to walk with God as Enoch did we must set up this light for ourselves to live by at home. For then we do no iniquity when we walk in his way. Again, there's your high standard. Where no wisdom is used in governing families, they all goeth to rack. Yeah, the phrase rack and ruin, yeah? They all goeth to rack. And there many enormities are to be found as woeful breaches between man and wife, gracelessness and unthriftiness of children, lewdness of servants and foul escapes. And where carnal policy rules and not the wisdom which is from above, there all that is done tends to the ease, pleasure, and profit of this life, in which it is fitter for brute beasts than for men to seek their felicity. So, successive generations of Puritans are asserting the same principle of divine establishment and government for the family as a whole, and for each of its constituent elements, and for their particular relationships to one another. Now, the importance of that basic idea becomes apparent as we move into the particulars of family life. Remember that the Puritans belonged to a society that, at least in its more polite and visible manifestations, largely paid some kind of lip service to the Bible as the word of God. That's one of their working assumptions. It's one of the reasons why the Puritans, although they're aware of them, don't always have to address directly the aberrations and perversions current in many societies today. Drawing on the data of Revelation, the Puritans were essentially content with God's definitions of and directions for family identities and activities, family roles and relationships. As one scholar has put it, the Puritans would have been frankly baffled by the view that the exploration of alternative lifestyles has produced many types of family, all worthy of equal esteem. That's just not on the table, because God hasn't spoken to that, or if he has, he has excluded it and exposed it. So here's Richard Steele on the marriage relationship, insisting from Ephesians 5, that every husband should love his wife as himself and every wife should reverence her husband. This, he insists, is the dictate of our Creator, both by the light of nature and of Scripture. This is the constant language both of the Old Testament and of the New and is more purposely handled and pressed by the two great apostles of the Jews and Gentiles that so all Christians, however descended, should submit unto it. For still this relationship in which love and reverence meet and embrace means that a husband and a wife must live together, love one another, be faithful to one another, be, uh, help one another, be patient with one another, labor for one another's salvation in the fullest sense, enjoy pure sexual relations with one another, care for one another's health, wealth, credit and contentment, and pray together. And bear in mind that what Steele skates over in a single sermon is unpacked at book length by men like Gouge and Baxter. Now that language of love and reverence often agitates the modern ear. I don't know if it's a thing here, but you know, the, the, the traditional wedding ceremony. Uh, a lot of people in the UK now, we, we don't do submit. That gets pulled right out. Um, so it can be, the way the Puritans deal with it can be a little bit awkward. Okay? So this is, this is Robert Bolton being quaint and awkward. <laughs> Souls have no sexes, as Ambrose says. In the better part, They, the husband and wife, are both men. I'll finish. (laughs) Yeah, let me get to the end of the quote, folks. And if thy wife's soul were freed from the frailty of her sex, it were as manly, as noble, as understanding, and every way as excellent as thine own. Let the husband then be so far from insulting over, condemning or undervaluing his wife's worth out of consideration that her soul is naturally every way as good as his own. Only the excellence of its native operations, something damped as it were, and disabled by the frailty of that weaker body, with which God's wise providence has clothed it upon purpose for a more convenient and comfortable but ingenuous serviceableness to his good. That, I say, he labor the more to entertain and entreat her with all tenderness and honor to recompense, as it were, her suffering in this kind for his sake. It's a little clunky. You might say that there's a. it's an insulting kind of compliment to say that actually a woman is, is, is like a man at the really good bit of her. But what he's trying to say is that she has the same essential dignity as any man and ought to be therefore cared for by her husband on that basis. Now, in reading language like that, Let's be careful not casually to assume that the Puritan view of woman and wife was somehow demeaning and dismissive simply because they were persuaded that the husband was head of the wife. Bolton insists that his understanding means the wife is deserving of the greater honor and care. You may have heard the well-known aphorism of Matthew Henry that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Heard that before? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Did you also know that a few lines before that, he suggests that man being made last of the creatures as the best and most excellent of all, Eve's being made after Adam and out of him, puts an honor upon that sex as the glory of the man. If man is the head... She is the crown, a crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined, one removed (laughs) further from the earth. In similar fashion, John Downame, again, you sort of think, okay, that's kind of a compliment. Sweetheart, you're dust double refined. (laughs) John Downame speaks of God as the institutor of marriage, who gave the wife unto the husband to be not his servant, but his helper, counselor, and comforter. Reading Puritan treatments of Proverbs 31, for example, allows us to see the robust appreciation and expectation of women that many such Puritans entertained. The Puritans then recognized the created dignity of both man and woman. Their fallen depravity as together being under the divine curse against sin, and the redemptive reality in which both, being united to Christ, are fully delivered from sin and made heirs together of the glory which is to come. And that never collapses or destroys the distinctions between men as men and women as women. When they consider marriage, the Puritans were basically content with the fundamental principles that you find, for example, in the Book of Common Prayer... The sister confessions of the 17th century, Westminster, Savoy and the Second London Baptist Confession, repeat the sense and I think improve the sequence on the Book of Common Prayer. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, the, Purita, the Presbyterians added, and of the church with an holy seed. So there's a difference here between the the Pedro baptist and the baptist understanding. So the, inc- the mutual help of husband and wife, the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, for some the church with what they called the holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. In the helpful summary of J.I. Packer, the Puritans went to Genesis for marriage's institution to Ephesians for its full meaning, to Leviticus for its hygiene, to Proverbs for its management, to several New Testament books for its ethic, and to Esther, Ruth, and the Song of Songs for illustrations and exhibitions of the ideal. Thus, grounded in divine revelation, we're provided with a view of marriage that is not prudish, but rather beautifully earthy. Not worldly, but earthy. It's real. There is no society more near, more entire, more needful, more kindly, more delightful, more comfortable, more constant, more continual than the society of man and wife, the main root, source and original of all other societies. Of course, redemptive reality does not mean sinless perfection, nor that the absence of temptation and pressure. But here the word of God for a Puritan pastor provides the same kind of grounding, both in terms of what we might call sanctified common sense and more specific counsels against and remedies for sin. So here's William Gouge's advice with regard to marriage. The match provided must not be too near of kin, of a contrary religion, of too unequal an age, of too great disparity in a state. Okay? So not too closely related not someone who doesn't believe what you believe, not too old with too young, and not too rich with too poor. All that stuff is going to make things really difficult. These things, he says, will hinder love and cause disdain and hatred of one another. William Watley urged that as young bees do seek unto themselves another hive, so let the young couple another house. That whatsoever come, they may never fall into that unhappiest of all unhappinesses of being either tormentors of their parents or tormented by them. (laughs) He recognized the pressures that too close a proximity to the in-laws could put on even the godliest couples. The same pattern holds true with regard to children. Richard Adams urges that God's pleasure and children's encouragement should move Christian children to obedience and parents to a moderate government in all things. Again, the same realism. Thomas Lye helps parents think through their challenges by supposing two possible truths about unconverted children. That it has been, is, and may be, the lot of gracious parents to have unconverted, wicked children, and that this wickedness of these unconverted children has been and is too, too often occasioned by their gracious parents' sinful severity or indulgence. That's good realistic counsel. Too great a severity and too great an indulgence often lies behind the sins of the children of gracious parents. Once again, The authority and responsibility that bound husbands and wives together, parents and children together, extended in the Puritan household to masters and servants. Taking into account the way in which all those relationships worked out, a Puritan household could effectively become an extended rather than a nuclear family, as most Europeans and Americans now understand it. Perhaps something more like what is seen in some African or Asian settings. So the kind of counsels and directions and rebukes that populate Puritan pages on this topic indicate that they were well aware of the difficulties that such relationships can involve. James Janeway preached a whole sermon on the duties of masters and servants, wisely pleading, oh, that all sorts and degrees of men would but reform one. Start with yourself and fill up their particular places and relations with duty. Oh, then what happy times, what happy days should we yet enjoy? So it's a God-established institution. Every role and the relationships between them. The fact, though, of this family being a God-established institution has an immediate and a direct corollary. If God has established the family, then it is ultimately for God himself. It's not just a God-established institution, it is a God-centered institution. Now that does not for one moment deny the blessings and joys of godly family living. Our joy and happiness is not a contradiction of God's glory, nor is God's glory to the exclusion of our joy. Rather, God is glorified in his blessings to us and in our obedience to him. Leyland Rikin states bluntly that the primary purpose of a family is to glorify God. That's actually radical. Even in a room like this, the primary purpose of a family is to glorify God. And I'll explain why I think it's radical shortly. Rikin draws attention to the Bostonian minister, Benjamin Wadsworth, who wrote a book called The Well-Ordered Family. Wadsworth opens by assuring us that a family wherein the true worship of God, good, pious instruction and government are upheld, is beautiful in the eyes of God himself. He delights to bless such. Every Christian, every gospel minister especially, should do all he can to promote the glory of God and the welfare of those about him. And the well-ordering matters in particular families tends to promote these things. The first sentence of that book by Wadsworth is, it should be the study and care of Christians to serve and please God in every capacity and relation they sustain. You could kind of write that across a lot of Puritanism. John Bunyan concurs in this active pursuit of the glory of God. He that is the master of a family, he has as under that relation a work to do for God to wit the right governing of his own family. Or remember Robert Cleaver. A household is, as it were, a little commonwealth. By the good government whereof, God's glory may be advanced. The commonwealth which stands of several families benefited, and all that live in that family may receive much comfort and commodity. Now, there's a, a well-known little tract by a man called John Jury called The Character of an Old English Puritan. And that starts to put some flesh on these bones. Jerry says that the Puritan was careful in all relations to know and do duty, and that with singleness of heart as unto Christ. He accounted religion and engagement to duty, that the best Christians should be best husbands, best wives, best parents, best children, best masters, best servants, best magistrates, best subjects, that the doctrine of God might be adorned, not blasphemed. His family he endeavored to make a church, both in regard of persons and exercises, admitting none into it but such as feared God, and laboring that those that were born in it might be born again to God. He blessed his family morning and evening by the word and prayer, and took care to perform those ordinances in the best season. He brought up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and commanded his servants to keep the way of the Lord. He set up discipline in his family as he desired it in the church, not only reproving but restraining vileness in his. Now, are we in danger of making our theology of the family primarily and ultimately about the family itself? Okay, that's what I'm saying. This is why the Puritan focus is so important. It may be that we see ourselves as making a social or political point, or that we are seeking those blessings which we anticipate coming upon a well-ordered family. However, my theology and your theology of the family should be first and foremost about God, and all those other things might be (coughs) added unto you. If we are complementarians... We ought to be so because we believe that God has ordained it and that God is glorified by it and that it will then bring the blessings and impacts that we hope. If we push for a certain approach to parent-child relationships or whatever else it may be, our motive ought to be that God is honored by what we do. That's our primary concern. We should not be seeking godly families because we have become social warriors but because we are always earnest disciples. And whatever anyone else thinks or says or does, it is for the glory of God that we want to be godly men and women in godly families. Family religion truly begins and right relationships are genuinely established when God is at the head and at the heart of all. And this means that the family as a God-centered institution seeks two things. First of all, the salvation of its members in the immediately redemptive sense. I want them all to be part of the kingdom of God. And then the sanctification of its members in the progressively redemptive sense. As Christians, we want to be as closely conformed to Christ as possible. So the Congregationalist Samuel Lee affirmed the truth of Jerome's words. Fiunt non nascunta christiani. No man is born a Christian but an air of wrath and divine justice. Let me pause there. I had a conversation with someone fairly recently who asked, in essence, what the breeding rate is among Christians in England. What? (laughs) Are you outbreeding the unbelievers? Because then you'll be able to transform society. Well, only if they're converted. You know, this is what I'm saying. Your family is not a weapon It is for the glory of God. And that is when it will do the good that you might desire it will do. Here's John Bunyan on the other side of that. Your children have souls and they must be begotten of God as well as of you or they perish. And know also that unless you are very circumspect in your behavior to and before them, they may perish through you, the thoughts of which should provoke you both to instruct and also to correct them. Richard Adams wants parents to make their requests known to God without ceasing upon all occasions for all things throughout the whole course of their children's lives. They are concerned to be daily orators at the throne of grace, that God would make their children his children and confer upon them all temporal and spiritual blessings. See that priority. Lee is equally aware that sometimes children must witness to their parents it may so fall out, he says, that in a whole family there may be but one child or one servant that truly fears God, as it was with Joseph in the house of Potiphar. He therefore answers to the question, what shall he do that would fain win a father, a master, or any other superior unto God? See, we often think, hey, I'm, I'm the godly dad or mum. It's about me and my children. If you're and say, yeah, what about if you're a godly son or daughter? You've got unconverted parents. What about your siblings? It's that breadth, that realism. Connected with and coming out of that concern that salvation in the bud should blossom into genuine holiness. Piety is the best thing a parent can teach his child, pleaded googe Learning, civility, calling, and portion. Intellectual attainments, social graces, your standing in the world, and the amount of money in your bank account, he says, are all nothing without piety. The Puritans, especially those inclined to the idea of a national church, tended to see family, church and state as intertwined, sometimes flowing out of and into one another. They made explicit connections between family religion and the health of the church. The keeping up of family duties makes every little house become a sanctuary, a Beth-el, a house of God. Now, before we look at what that means in practice, it's good for us to consider that this God-centeredness lies not only in the fact that God establishes the family, but that God himself patterns aspects of family living. Reading Puritan literature of all sorts leaves us struck, and please do read the Puritans. Don't just read clever people who talk about the Puritans. Read the Puritans. We're struck by the incidental insights and illuminations offered, a willingness and ability to bring out of texts, illustrations and applications which modern exegetes tend to overlook. So here's John Flavel speaking to the fears of a dying person for his surviving relations. Who took care of you when death snatched your dear relations from you, who possibly felt the same workings of heart that you now do? Did you not experience the truth of that word? Psalm twenty seven ten, when father and mother forsake me then the Lord takes me up? And if you be in the covenant, God hath prevented this plea, God has preempted you with this promise Jeremiah forty nine eleven Leave thy fatherless children to me, I will keep them alive, and let their widows trust in me. We could explore the relationship that the Lord God had with Israel under the Old Covenant, especially the marriage motif, or the fatherhood of God illustrated in Matthew 7, Luke 11, Hebrews 12. We could look at the relationship the God-man, Jesus Christ, sustains to the church his bride in the New Covenant, and that lies behind a lot of the Puritan treatments of the Song of Solomon. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan particularly renowned for the sweetness of his Christ sensibility, loved to dwell upon those aspects of God's disposition toward the saints. Listen to Sibbs: There is no relation that has any comfort in it, but Christ has taken it upon him. He is our head, husband, friend, father, brother, and whatsoever can convey comfort to us. So Sibs is saying, if, if you've got a sweet relationship... Christ is happy to take that idea and show himself to you in something of that form. And the truth of it is, he is these things more truly than any relation is made true on earth. So now he's saying, now it's actually that all those comfortable relations are reflections of the great reality of Christ in his mercy toward you. For these relations of husband and wife, brother and sister, father and child are but shadows of that everlasting relation that Christ has taken upon him. The reality and truth itself is in Christ. That's a stunning insight. That's Paul saying, oh, that Ephesians 5 thing that we always talk about? Yeah, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. That's the truth. This is the shadow. Do we read our Bibles and think like that? Do we draw out such truths of a comprehensive sense of divine revelation? It's not isolated. God's goodness is not afar off, says Sibs, but God follows us with his goodness in whatsoever condition we be. He applies himself to us and God has taken upon him near relations that he might be near us in goodness. He is a father and everywhere to maintain us. He is a husband and everywhere to help. He is a friend everywhere to comfort and counsel. So his love, it is a near love. Therefore, he has taken upon himself the nearest relations that we may never want God. Never lack, he means. We can never lack a sense of God and the testimonies of his love. Or the church in relation to Christ. It is fit that the husband and wife should be of one disposition. Christ is the husband, we the spouse. Therefore, by grace, he alters and cleans and purges his spouse, as it is in Ephesians 5.25. It is right the wife should be the glory of the husband, as St. Paul says. That is, that she should reflect (coughs) the excellencies of her husband. Therefore, that the church might be the glory of Christ and reflect the excellencies of Christ, she is changed to be like Christ more and more daily. There's a kind of congruity that brothers should be like, and that the spouse and the husband should be alike. You know, those husbands. You, know, you ever seen the husbands and wives who married for years, and one of them's looking over there and reaching for something, and the other one's looking over there and puts it where the hand goes? They, they've, they've grown like each other. They're, they're, they're walking. They're, they're, there's a synchronicity. He says that's the way it is between Christ and His bride. They, they grow to be like one another. Therefore, God has ordained that we should be like him in a threefold degree in suffering, in grace and in glory. Whoever will be like him in glory must be like him in grace. First, God's election and ordaining must have its issue. That is the representation of the likeness of Christ in our natures. So for the typical Puritan, God is at the center of the family. That's not a theoretical statement. It has profound practical implications it means not only that decisions are made and actions undertaken with a deliberate concern for the glory of God in our families it means also that relationships within the family should be in particular and careful respects patterned upon the way God is in Christ to his people now we need to be careful there Because there's a lot that happens today when people say, we're like this, project upwards, therefore God must be like this. That's a fatally flawed approach. If you project your mortality, your finitude, your failings up onto deity. Rather, the Puritans are saying, God is like this. And there's something then in our relationships, which is something like that, which is in and from God himself. It begins with the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit. So never illegitimately imposing upwards human understanding onto God, but rather a recognition that God has revealed himself in his relationships to us in ways that allow and require us to follow him in our relationships to one another. And I don't have time to go into it, but if we were sort of preaching through some of these things... It's the question, you know, do your children look at your relationship to them if you're a father and say, I want a relationship with God as a father that's a bit like what my dad is. Or do they look at the relationship, children, between a husband and a wife and say, well, if that's the way that a Christian husband is like to his Christian wife and a Christian wife is like to her Christian husband, then I want to be part of the church that has Christ as her bridegroom. Okay, looking up. But thirdly, we need to rush on. We need to ask the question, how would this happen? How would a Puritan have pursued the establishment and maintenance of a God-ordained, God-established, God-centred family unit? And the short answer is by making sure that the whole home environment was thoroughly and actively imbued with divine truth, dependence upon God's spirit. A healthy Puritan family would be bathed in prayer and saturated with the word of God. It was a God-soaked institution. God-established, God-centered, and God-soaked. The Puritan parents' instruction was to be both deliberate and incidental, both formal and informal. The Puritans loved to remind us of the Lord's directive through Moses. Deuteronomy 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So for the Puritans, godly parenting then in particular isn't just we have to have family worship every day. They're saying you should have family worship every day, but that should only be the formal element. All your interactions with your family, with your children, with your husband, with your wife, they should all be incidentally bringing something to bear of God. The routine of Puritan worship (coughs) was weekly and daily. First of all, the high point of worship was the Lord's Day, the gatherings of the saints. The Lord may be said to love the gates of Zion before all the dwellings of Jacob because he prefers public worship before private. He loved all the dwellings of Jacob wherein he was worshipped privately, but the gates of Zion he loved more than all the dwellings of Jacob for there he was publicly worshipped, said David Clarkson. Families gathered as part of the congregation. In connection with public worship, a Puritan family would pursue both private and family worship. And the connection between all these modes of worship came to clear expression in the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, uh, 1644, and the Westminster Directory for Family Worship of 1647. The former, the public worship, makes repeated reference to family worship as a reflection of reaction to and preparation for public worship. What's the best way to plug your children into the life of the local congregation. It's to make sure that family worship moves them toward, engages with, and reflects what's going on in the church as a whole. The directory for family worship requires that besides the public worship in congregations, mercifully established in this land in great purity, it is Historical. It is expedient and necessary that secret worship of each person alone and private worship of families be pressed and set up, that with national reformation, the profession and power of godliness, both personal and domestic, be advanced. A later American iteration exhorts to family worship, which ought to be performed by every family ordinarily morning and evening, consists in prayer, reading the scriptures and singing praises. That reflects and provides the outline for typical Puritan family worship. It also takes account of the dynamics of family life which we've already considered with the structures of responsibility and authority in place according to God's word. We accept, we should accept, that the Puritans tend to assume a scriptural family structure and a healthy family capacity, which does not always translate so easily into the fractured families of today. But bear in mind that where we have single-parent families, they've got a death rate that often rob, robs a husband of a wife or a wife of a husband. The pattern is there, though, and it's helpful. In the language of Thomas lie again, It is the great and indispensable duty, and therefore ought to be the serious and constant care of superiors, that is those who are above you in authority, prudently and piously to train up or catechise, to instruct and educate all such inferiors as are committed to their care and conduct. Lye insists upon this as a responsibility for both fathers and mothers in particular, not to be shuffled off to pastors and Sunday school teachers, youth ministers and the like. He's, now, I'm not saying that there's no legitimacy in those, but they are supplements, not replacements. Okay? It's a family responsibility first, and then the other things can come into play. Now, if you're thinking, oh, what about this? What about... That? Lai even wants to extend that oversight to servants in households and pupils in schools. So when you're pushing some of this stuff, if you're pushing it too far, remember that the Puritans would say, and as an employer, how's that going for you? Okay. So just bear in mind that these dynamics need to be handled wisely. So the primary elements of Puritan family worship would have been prayer and reading the scriptures. The prayers are neither short nor shallow, would have been aimed at comprehensive simplicity (coughs) in drawing near to god making confession of sin thanksgiving and petitions scripture reading would typically be carried out by the father as household head then there'd be conference instruction and discussion from scripture the westminster directory offers specific guidance with an interesting qualification won't give you the quote now because of time but the they say this is how you should do the reading oh and this is how you can manage if nobody in the congregation, can, nobody in their family can read. Or if there's only one who can read. Uh, so you think, oh, yeah. Again, not a consideration that many of us take into account. Lies suggests that those who have responsibility should observe the strain and current of the whole scriptures. And you shall find very few or none of those family governors that were really converted themselves... But they gave this excellent testimony of the truth and soundness of the grace of God in them, namely, in being careful and solicitous to beget and breed it in the hearts of those that were under their roof and charge. Which being translated means, if you're a Christian parent, your first concern is the Christianity genuinely of your children. This catechesis, this basic instruction, might take the form of a question and answer format. A lot of the Puritans did family catechisms, uh, prepared documents sometimes, carefully phrased and finely honed statements of scriptural truth pressed into the hearts of the family. So that when Joel Beakey talks about adoption, if you've done the shorter catechism in your family, you're going, yep, reading that off just in my brain. It's all there. The, the, the Velcro in my brain... Is, 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 has got all this stuff attached to it, the frameworks in place. Many Puritans would also engage in singing God's praises as part of family worship. And for most of them, that means the Psalter. Now, all of this was carried out with wisdom, tenderness, and goodwill. Puritan treatments of this duty of family worship contain many counsels about knowing your family, understanding their capacities and personalities, and managing the content timing and duration of family worship and other instruction so they wouldn't have said to someone who's never done family worship before right go home today and for two hours this evening (laughs) you're going to kill yourself let alone your family okay and and what if what if you've got teenagers what if you've got two-year-olds what if you've got two-year-olds and teenagers uh, what if you've never done this before? What if they've never done this before? It's, it, take account, says the Puritan pastor. Entertain, this is lovely, entertain their tender attentions with discourses of God's infinite greatness and amiable goodness of the glories of heaven, of the torments of hell. Things that affect the senses must be spiritualized to them. Catch their affections by a holy craft. Sit down, Bible time. (laughs) Uh, You're not going to win anyone like that. Deal? I wish I were joking. (laughs) That's just my house. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, it sometimes does get like that. Be, be, Be rich. Sit down it is time, okay? (laughs) And then we'll get nice. Right, okay. (laughs) Let's go on. Deal as much in similitudes as you can. Likenesses. If you be together in a garden, draw some sweet and heavenly discourse out of the beautiful flowers. If by a riverside, treat of the water of life and the rivers of pleasure that are at God's right hand. If in a field of corn, speak of the nourishing quality of the bread of life. If you see birds flying in the air or hear them singing in the woods, teach them the all-wise providence of God that gives them their meat in due season. If you look up to the sun, moon, and stars, tell them they are but the shining spangles of the outhouses of heaven. Oh, then, what glory is there within if you see a rainbow to diaper some waterish cloud, means decorate, if you see a rainbow to decorate some waterish cloud, talk of the covenant of God. These and many more may be like so many golden links drawing divine things into their memories. You ever talk to your children about the view of the mountains around Los Angeles? You ever look around you and plug in what they're seeing and smelling and touching and tasting, saying, this shows God to us. So, says Samuel Lee, urging fathers to be frequent and pithy and clear in family instruction. Now, of course, none of this could be adequately carried out if the head of the household, together with those under his charge, were not also seeking God's face in private devotion. And that's another topic. Now, that may sound somewhat burdensome to us in terms of the investment required, both of time and energy. But turn it around. If our appetites for the glory of God were closer to what they ought to be, perhaps we would be more careful to make the time and give the energy required to seek his face for ourselves and for our families. It may be that this all sounds a little bit stark, a little bit harsh, a bit lifeless, if so, a dear friend of mine, a now retired pastor by the name of Phil Arthur, delivered a paper at what's called the Westminster Conference in London uh, oh, it was years ago now. Um, he imagined the typical Puritan family in their daily and weekly rhythms of life. So like, for, for an hour, it's like he's looking through the window of a Puritan family over the course of a whole week. And if you want to get an idea of the real earthiness of it, if you can track down that material it would be ideal. So let's conclude. Three reminders that may help us to carry something useful from this survey into our own hearts, hopefully into our own homes and into our own congregations. Remember first that the Puritans had a wonderfully positive view of marriage and family. Building on their conviction that it was not a second best state, not some necessary evil for the less spiritual kind of disciple, they practiced and preached a rich and ripe notion of what it meant to belong to God's most basic social institution. Let me pause at that point to say that if you are not part of such a family, the Puritans would not have thought of you as a second-rate Christian either. Sometimes I get a little bit concerned that the elevation of the family can leave especially single Christians or people who've suffered various kinds of distress and disappointment in their relationships feeling like they're worthless and they have nothing to offer. We need to be extremely careful about that, that we don't create the kind of ideal that leaves anybody who's not in it feeling like they're right on the outside. Okay. there's a danger, though, today with the assault upon marriage and family, with its particular roles and relationships, that our response becomes primarily negative, doer, sour, unhappy, you know, that that defensive mindset that just talks about what's wrong with everything rather than the fact that God has blessed us with this and it's great. A godly marriage and a family conditioned by a high view of God's truth as it relates to all the roles and relationships within it is a wonderful gospel testimony. Now, do we actually celebrate and enjoy what God has ordained? A marriage is not just, family is not just, husbands, wives, children, parents, masters, servants. It's not just a duty that we do because it scores points. It's something that God has blessed us with, and we ought to enjoy it, and that itself is a testimony. Remember also that the Puritans had a robustly realistic view of marriage and family. The Puritans, as expert physicians of souls, understood the typical sins and the effective remedies for when those sins creep into married and family life. Bunyan, for example, gives five councils on dealing with families which are ungodly and unruly, touching all that is good. Heads of households are to remember their God-given authority. I think that's one of the fundamental problems in a lot of Christian families, that we don't actually recognize the authority that God has given, and therefore we don't exercise it in a God-given and God-honoring way. So, remember your God-given authority. Bring your family members under the public worship. If need be, get the preacher into your own home. Embrace all your family duties as servants of God. And, the last, suffer not, that is, do not allow, any ungodly, profane, or heretical books or discourse in your house. What could be more relevant in the age of this? Constant streaming and social media. And remember, finally, that the Puritans had a fundamentally scriptural view of marriage and family. We are not in any way stripped of the resources which we still need to understand and embrace the way in which we are to live in relationship one to another. We also have our Bibles, and our Bibles are sufficient. We have the Puritans as well as many others before and after who help us to bring the Bible to bear on family life. You and I do not need to reinvent the wheel. We should welcome such investments whether they are from the dead or the living rather than fence off our homes or specific areas in our home life from pastoral ministry and historical help. My friends, if we want godly families, do not keep loving mature christian friends and godly pastors at arm's length welcome them in to every room and every relationship in your home ultimately of course if we are true children of god and disciples of christ we have god the holy spirit indwelling us instructing us and enabling us more and more to walk righteously in all these things we have the word of god we have the spirit of god And we have those legitimate helps and means that God has provided. So the circumstances in which we live may have changed, but our fundamental convictions do not. The Puritans may not have lived in our time and place. They may may not... Imagine putting a Puritan in in this room and thinking, what do you think? But they still breathe our air. Their earthiness... And their godliness, that godly reality, continues to prompt and probe our souls. Our here and now brings its own particular challenges and its own distinct opportunities. But it still bears a striking resemblance in many things to the Puritan there and then. Ours is the same world as the Puritans inhabited and in which they labored after God's ideal. Our world is still populated by men and women, made in God's image with regard to their created dignity, rebelling against their creator as expressed in their fallen depravity, and by his mercy, many graciously restored to live and walk in newness of life in accordance with the redemptive reality of union with the living Christ under the guidance of the Spirit through the Word. Amen.